Thank you for joining us for another podcast from the Commonwealth Club. Greetings and welcome to today's meeting of the Commonwealth Club of California. I'm Judy Chan, president of Health Pro Consulting, and I'm a member of the club's Health and Medicine member-led forum, and I'm also the moderator and the chair for tonight's program. This topic is a very interesting one to many people, just the high cost of drugs. So we are honored to have with us tonight an expert group of panelists um, for our topic, the secret behind um, high drug uh, costs. And so our panelists are Mary Powell, David Wiesner, and Promote John. From, uh, so Mary is from Trucker Huss. David is from Edgewood Partners Insurance uh, Center. And uh, Promote is from Vivio Health. So... I'll tell you a little bit about each of these um, and their background, and then um, we'll uh, go into the uh, presentations. So Mary is an attorney and partner at Trucker Huss. She's lauded by Chambers as having exceptional client management skills and a very diligent and detailed-oriented approach. Uh, Mary has two decades of experience in all aspects of employee benefits. Currently, her main focus is assisting employees with the implementation of the Patient Protection and Affordable Care Act. Mary assists employers with obtaining private letter rulings from the IRS, and she submits comments to the IRS and Department of Labor both prior to the issuance of regulations and in response to proposed guidance issued by those agencies. Mary is a Chambers-rated lawyer and is listed as a 2017 and 2018 top-rated employee benefits attorney in San Francisco by Super Lawyers. David Wiesner is a principal at Edgewood Partners Insurance Consultants in Northern California. David earned his undergraduate degree in finance and philosophy and his MBA from Santa Clara University. For over 25 years, David has worked as a health and benefits consultant in the Bay Area, working with many different employers, small and large. David's interest in prescription drugs started early in his career once he learned how much money can be found. <laughs> Promote John is CEO of Vivio Health, which is transforming the way care is delivered for specialty drug therapies, leading to better outcomes for less. So prior to Vivio Health, Promote founded Oration, which was changing the way consumers purchase prescription medications by capturing the prescription in the physician's office and providing all the pricing options and routing automatically using mobile. His first healthcare experience was VP of Strategy and Innovation at McKesson, where he learned that everything he assumed about the way the healthcare system worked was incorrect. He started out his career in the network security space, founding netexaminer.com, which was acquired by SonicWall and PacketMotion, which was acquired by VMware. So Promote earned his PhD in electrical engineering from the University of Illinois at Urbana-Champaign. He serves on the boards of Mission Aviation Fellowship, a global relief organization, and Three Crosses Church in Castro Valley, California. He is also an advisor to Folio Water and mentor at StartX. So just as a quick intro before we have Mary start, pharmacy benefit managers are the invisible middlemen of the healthcare industry. Um, they were initially set up to help control drug utilization and cost. So it was thought that having middlemen specifically devoted to increasing efficiency and lowering costs, that they could improve the system for everyone involved. So it hasn't actually turned out that way. And that's what you're going to hear tonight. <laughs> so the three big PBMs are Express Scripts, CVS, and Optum. 
So be forewarned, uh, if you haven't heard a lot of these presentations, that there may be a lot of new terms for some of you, especially those of you who are um, uh, buying drugs on your own. Okay, so we will begin. Mary will start us off with a background and overview of PBMs. So as I said, PBMs are the middlemen between your health plan, the pharmacy, and the pharmaceutical company. And while uh, PBMs do not touch the drugs or conduct R&D, or manufacture the drugs, the PBMs set the prices we all pay. So this part of the presentation will explain the PBMs and how they are in the position to set drug prices. Mary. Thank you. Thank you very much. <laughs> Thanks, you guys, for coming. I wanted to thank Judy and the Commonwealth Club for hosting this talk. I appreciate it very much. Um, and for David and Promote for agreeing to speak. So I'm going to start off um, actually trying to explain to you the main parties. And I want you to um, assume that you get your coverage through your employer plan, because that's actually how most Americans get their coverage. It is a very similar construct for Medicare, but I'm going to talk about it in the employer structure um, so we can put it in some kind of space for us to understand. So imagine you are an employer, right? And most people get their group health coverage, vision, dental, mental health, prescription drugs through plans sponsored by their employer, right? So the employer says, I want a prescription drug plan for um, my employees. They will then contract with a vendor called a PBM. And this PBM will be the entity that says, I can get you a network of pharmacies. Oh, you have employees in five states. I know how to get you know, a pharmacy of networks in those um, states. They negotiate what the employer plan will pay for a drug that is dispensed to your participants under your plan. And they determine your formulary. So the PBM says, hey, to the employer, if you want to use our network of pharmacies, if you want to use our pricing, you're going to use our formulary. And the formulary is actually the drugs covered on your plan, right? That's how um, we know it's covered under our plans or not. So we have this contract between the employer and the PBM. The PBM also has a contract with the pharmacies, totally separate. So here's the PBMs, and they have a contract with the pharmacies. And they say to the pharmacies, hey, you're in our network. When you dispense a drug to a participant in the plan, this is how much you're going to be paid. That's determined between the PBM and the pharmacy. Um, and the PBM says, you know, I have contracts with a lot of employers. I'll send you information about each employer plan. So when someone shows you a card, you know, to you collect this kind of copay or then the deductible or whatever it is. So again, that's the PBM's contract with the pharmacies. The PBM has a very separate contract with the employers. The PBM also has a contract with the pharmaceutical companies. Because the PBM controls the formulary for all of these employer plans, the pharmaceutical companies know they got to get on that formulary. So they pay a lot of money to the PBMs to get on the formulary. And again, that's a very separate contract. That's between the pharmaceutical company and the PBM. So as you can see, the guy who sits in the middle is the PBM. They kind of have all of these different contracts. The pharmacies have a separate contract with wholesalers, right, to get the drugs into their pharmacies. That's how you get the drugs there that are going to be dispensed, <clears throat> which I don't talk very much about in the structure. A big problem for employers where we get our health coverage is they only have visibility into the contract between the employer and the PBM. 
their contract. They don't have visibility into the contract with the pharmacies or the contracts with the pharmaceutical companies. So all kinds of shenanigans go on, and that's what I want to explain to you. I feel super passionate about this topic, which probably seems weird, but I spent a lot of time looking at the data and being all fired up about it for several years now, because I feel like if I could get all the employers together, we could maybe demand some better rules and transparency so we could break through the system. Um, group health plans, almost 50, like, it's like 52% or something of people get their coverage from group health plans, more than Medicare and Medicaid combined. 156 million Americans get their coverage through group health plans, these employer group health plans. And these group health plans that we have for employers, right? It's like health, vision, dental, mental health, you know, EAP, all of these things. The prescription drug piece of it is about 20 to 25% of the cost. Right, So every employer should understand this system because that's where you're going to get cost savings. Now, you could say, like, well, why like, aren't all the giant employers have better contracts with PBMs? Our firm, Trucker Hust, we represent some of the largest employers in the nation, and we have to fight tooth and nail to get decent contracts because three PBMs own the market. They own more than 80% of the market. That's Express Scripts, CVS Caremark, and OptumRx. When they own the market, they kind of dictate terms. You're playing within their structure and their game, and that can be hard. Express Scripts reported a profit of $3.4 billion in 2016, up 34% in 2015. OptumRx had a $2.7 billion um, profit. CVS, because they have tons of different um, operating lines, they don't actually give any information about their PBM financials. But you can see year after year after year, they have this massive increase in profits. From what? They don't do the R&D. That's where the pharmaceutical companies do, right? They don't distribute the drugs. That's done by the pharmacies. They are literally the middleman. So I get aggravated about it. Like, do they have a place? Yeah, but they have squeezed so much money out of everyone that we're now in a place that it's going to be hard to break, although I think we can. So... Since 1987, the group health plans have paid about $300 billion in prescription drugs, right? This is just a huge, giant industry. And again, I just think, why do these guys control it? And I see how they got there. They found a place to be in this structure, and now they hold all the data. And that's difficult for us to deal with. So I think about why are people more fired up about this now? And I think it's because of the rise of the high deductible health plans. About 30 to 35% of people who are on employer plans are now covered by high deductible health plans. That means you pay like something like $2,000 before your health plan coverage kicks in, right? You have to pay out of pocket a certain deductible before your health coverage kicks in. All of a sudden, people were like, why do my drugs cost so much? This is crazy. I'm paying a ton of money. Where we used to just pay 5 and $10 copays for drugs, that was the old system. About a decade ago, that really changed with these high-deductible health plans. That's how employers could deal with the rising cost. But it kind of showed a little transparency to people. Like, all of a sudden, you could see that different pharmacies, you know, the drugs cost different. And a cash payer could probably get a drug at a lower cost than someone who showed their insurance card. So what the hell is going on, right? And that, I think, fired people up to try to figure out a little more about the system. So this is my super fancy drawing I did for you guys, in which I just wanted you to see that the PBM is the one that has the contracts, right? They have the important contracts. And we don't have visibility as the employer into the terms of the other contracts, and that's very difficult. So I want to tell you guys a little bit about the way the money is made. And David's actually going to talk more about this, about how you would actually try and negotiate 
um, with a PBM. But I think this kind of broader structure I'm going to tell you about, you can see how it came about from the structure and why this is happening. So I couldn't tell you every possible way that PBMs make money because every time I figure out five new ones, you know, two other ones pop up. But there's spread comp, formulary fees, market share fees, drug reclassification, rebates. You can find them peppered throughout um, the document, and sometimes they're nowhere in the document, but I know that they're there. So I want to tell you a little bit about the concept of spread compensation. So when a drug goes out to the market, the pharmaceutical company says, this is the price of the drug. It's AWP, the average wholesale price. It means nothing. It's a completely, no one pays that amount. It's a complete nonsense number. But that's what it gets reported in these reporting services is the AWP. Um, so an employer plan, the structure the employer is really stuck with, is negotiating with the PBM to receive an amount off AWP, like 80% off or 20% off depending on the drugs, even though AWP is a nonsense number. But that's, so the employer has this contract with the PBM about what they're going to pay for a drug. And let's just bucket it. We could have like, you know, generic drugs, brand drugs, and specialty. I mean, there's a lot of sub buckets under those, but assume those are the big buckets. So you have the group health plan says, hey, on average for a generic, I'm going to pay 50 bucks um, when it's dispensed. But the PBM has a contract with the pharmacy that says, when you dispense that drug, I'm going to pay you 30 bucks. So the group health plan is paying the PBM 50 bucks for that, and the PBM is paying the pharmacy 30. That's spread compensation. Um, it can, I just recently saw one where it was thousands of dollars of difference in the spread, um, but there is spread every time on that. And so that is a way, and you cannot get information um, or visibility into that as an employer, which is super aggravating. Another thing that you know drives me crazy is the rebates. So I told you, like, here's the PBM, and they have the formulary, right? And they're the PBM for, if you think about, there's 156 million Americans on employer-sponsored plans. And there's three PBMs that own 80% of the market, right? And those PBMs tell you this is the standard formulary that you have to adopt. These are the drugs that are on it. Well, when they decide what drugs are on it, they're really being dictated by these rebates, so, which is a horrible thing that has happened. Um, so I told you that the pharmaceutical company will pay the PBM to get their drug on the formulary. That is priced now into the drug. So the AWP price, the sticker price that you see, the pharmaceutical company says, oh, it costs this much for R&D and manufacturing and all this stuff. And I got to bake in the price that I have to pay as a rebate to the PBM to get it on the formulary. So that's all has like distorted, um, and Promote knows much more about this than I do, but it's super distorted what the cost of drugs are. Um, you know, people think maybe is it's a third of the cost of the drugs maybe is what that rebate is or, or higher, 40%. Um, and the FDA commissioner, who I actually kind of love, is always talking about this. He's like, we've got the system wrong. We're incentivizing this whole system to have... Um, drugs price, the AWP, just to get higher and higher and higher. And AWP never drops. Like, it never changes. Once once the, the pharmaceutical company says this is the sticker price, it will never go down. Even when competing drugs come out, even when generics come out, AWP doesn't move. So it's such a false price. And I think, you know, what it has caused us is to have a formulary full of drugs that the PBM gets a lot of rebates on, 
and not a formulary that's full of the best drugs. Um, I know both Eli, Lily, and Merck have decided after doing R&D, after getting FDA approval, to not put their biosimilars or generics out on the market because they can't bust that system. Um, Eli, Lily gave gave an example of a um, diabetes drug where they said, even after two years being the lowest cost drug and effective for that thing, they could only get on about 17% of the formularies. And it was just too difficult to get into the market. Well, that, that, that's not what we want, right? That's a, not the outcome that we want. So, you know, employers are onto this. They're like, hey, this is not cool. We need to get some of this money back. So they try and negotiate with the PBMs to get some of that rebate money back. But that is really super hard to do because now the PBMs understand that, right? The pharmaceutical companies are like, I'm giving you all this money to get on the formulary. The employer plans are like, hey, that's mine. I should take it back. You should have, you know, that money should flow back down to me. I'm going to put it into the group health plan to reduce the cost of the health plan for my employees. But that's, you know, they're not going to break that system. So instead, they call it payment for other things. So maybe because they give data on all of us on the drugs that we take, how often we take them, when we lapse in taking drugs, right? Three PBMs hold the data about us about our drug use, right? And they give that, they sell that back to the pharmaceutical companies. Three PBMs have a ton of information about drug use, what people will pay, you know, how pharmacies pay for things. So they start to say that's really what we're paying the PBM for. It's not a rebate. It's something else. So you have to be super careful on how you structure your contracts to capture as much as you can. You know, I, I think that Dave is going to talk about a, a lot of these particular things. I want to tell you two other things that super aggravate me in the model that we're in right now. So you're an employer, right? And you're trying to negotiate a PBM contract. And you're an employer who makes shoes. Like the last thing you know is the reporting services for a prescription drug plan, right? We put employers in a place where they're so, supposed to be like super specialists on all these coatings and pharmaceutical things. I mean, this took me years, actually, to understand all these reporting guides and the data for this, right? And that's my job as an employee benefits lawyer. Like, that's what I do every day. But imagine that's not your job because you're an employer, but you're expected to give coverage to your employees, right? That's where we get our coverage. So if you don't know, you might just sign the PBM contract. And some things they do, like I told you, they bucket drugs, right? Generic, brand, and specialty. And in the generic, you have to be careful how you define it. But the employer doesn't know how to do that. But if you don't, the PBM will take advantage of that. So they will call a drug a generic for some things in the contract and call it a brand for others. So you might be smart enough as an employer to say, I want to have this many generics on my formulary. And if you don't PBM, then you owe me a fee, right? So you're trying to like have some talk, you know, some sway on what your formulary is going to be. So, but you don't define the term very well, and you don't say if a drug is a generic or a brand. So the, that PPM will say, okay, we're going to call this drug a generic for your how many generics are on the formulary, but we're going to price it as a brand. We're going to charge it to you as a brand because it's a limited distribution generic. It is a single source generic. It is a generic that has combined you know, with other items. I, I mean, the definitions that you see are nuts, Um and again, that drives me crazy because I think that employers try hard to deal with this, but they don't know how to negotiate it. This is the last thing I'm going to tell you about before I hand it over to David. And this is actually 
I think we're coming close to this being the end of, um, I don't know, of when, of them doing this is the copay clawbacks. Um, again, there's been several cases on this. So imagine, like I told you, you have the employer plan, right? The employer has this agreement with the PBM and the employer says, Hey, these, this is the design of our plan because we want to encourage people to use this tier of generics versus this tier. So for generic A, there's going to be a copay of 30 bucks. PBM says, okay, I'll make sure all the network pharmacies know that to collect $30 from you when you go in to get generic A. So you go to the pharmacy in the network, show them your card, and the pharmacy collects 30 bucks. That's your copay for generic A. Well, the PBM contract with the pharmacy says, when you dispense generic A, I pay you 20 bucks. And you've collected $30 from the participant. When Mary went in to get it, you collected 30 bucks. I said, you can only have 20. Give me the 10 back. And the PBM hold, holds that 10 bucks, right? So it's a, it's a, a total clawback of these copays. And it's tons of money. Thankfully, they lost a case recently, the PBMs. So now when you negotiate it, you just have to say the name of that case. And they're like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. Well, you know, put a clawback provision in your agreement. Um, my point in telling you that story is, you know, just because, because they own the system and the employers don't have transparency in the data, these shenanigans go on all the time. And I can fight tooth and nail about it every day for employers, but until we get some rules about transparency, I think we're fighting the same battle all the time and it's aggravating. But in any event, um, I'm going to go ahead and let David talk about his stuff. So that was just your background on my love for the PBMs. <laughs> So th this is going to get real interesting because I'm going to hit some of the same stuff, but I'm going to get into some granular detail. And actually, hopefully, I'm going to answer some of our questions because you can get around some of this stuff. You just can't do it with the big guys unless you have like 200,000 employees. So if you're big enough, they will actually agree to some of the stuff that we want. But that's not most employers. Most employers are 50, 100, 200, a couple thousand. For them, the big guys, they want their deal because they're Vegas. And when you go to Vegas, you lose. And that's when dealing with the PBMs. I do have a good friend, though, that has, you know, PBM, what does it stand for? Pharmacy Benefit Manager? No, Perfect Business Machine. These people know how to make money like nobody's business at all. Uh, disclaimer, there we go. Okay. So the biggest problem I see with the PBMs and their contracts is that there's no alignment of incentives. So what the PBM is doing isn't in alignment with what the employer or employees want. You want to have the correct drugs at the lowest possible price, and the PBM is there trying to figure out how they can maximize their profits at all times. And this is what Mary's talking about, all these games that they play. And I'm going to say at the end of the day, the biggest thing you got to get to is the contract. And the really sad part is a lot of employers, well, if you're fully insured, you can't control it at all. If you're doing something called self-funding, if you're doing it with one of the big insurance carriers, often they give you two pages. It's not even a contract. It has this very, very skeletal outline of what you even get. And there's absolutely no enforceability at all and no auditability. So what I talk about with my clients all the time is you need to get to a point where you can fully audit and get the transparency we're looking for. Um, and that's all buried in the contract language. So this is the bucket slide we refer to it as. Different ways PBMs make money. 
This is the short bucket slide. I have another one that has like 65 different categories, right? And I'm not going to go through all of these. She mentioned clawbacks. That's one version of clawback. There's another version of clawback, which is simply where the PBM, like on a quarterly basis, goes back to the pharmacy and says, okay, you process a thousand claims. You owe us 25 cents per claim. Pay us. Now, usually it doesn't show up in a contract at all. Periodically, you'll see it under this phrase that that was access to our call center and administrative computer system. They charge 25 cents per claim for that. Okay, well, that still gets built onto your cost when you pick up the drug somewhere. Um, spread pricing, I'm going to talk about that. Rebate manipulation, I'm going to talk about that. But all these different things in here, the way they sell your data, the way they do mail autofills, PBMs on mail order, turns out you get 13 or 14 fills a year. Why? Because if they can fill an extra and they make extra money on it. So you got to watch your autofills. They'll, like, they'll give you, if you wash your cabinet after two or three years, you got extra bottles there. You're like, why do they keep sending this to me? Because they send it to you a little bit early so they can get you 13 fills in 12 months. They you know they know what they're doing. So spread. Mary covered this. Spread is this idea behind what they buy it for versus what they guarantee they're going to sell it to you for. This is 90% or 95% of the contracts out there still work on spread pricing. There are some contracts out there referred to as pass-through. The pass-through pricing contract says, whatever I buy it for, I'm going to give it to you directly because their only revenue is going to be an administration fee. I love those contracts because that hopes that starts to align incentives. We're no longer making money on spread. We're just going to make money on a per claim or per employee basis. But 95% of the market works on the spread concept. And I put these numbers up here, just to try to keep them in mind. Brand drugs, AWP minus 16. I can't might be kind of an average number you'd see in a contract. Generic guaranteeing you maybe minus 72, right? But to Mary's point, as we go into this, they flip drugs around on us. So what is a brand? What's a generic? Simple question. In my mind, a brand drug is under patent and a generic drug is off patent with multiple manufacturers. No, it's not right. Somebody said right. No, we're wrong. Branded generic is what the contract says. Okay. And these are actual phrases from contracts. And I got bunches of these, but you know, a brand claim is something that adjudicates, pays as a brand. Hmm. A generic drug is that, that drugs that are not defined as brand drugs. Well, that's circular logic. By the way, the other part of this contract says brand drugs are not that are not are not generic drugs, right? So literally, it's a circular logical argument that they have in their contract. I always love this one also because this is a dead giveaway. A brand drug is any drug where a manufacturer has more than a sixty-one percent market share. So even if you have three or four generic manufacturers, if somebody dominates the market, it means the PBM could not negotiate seventy-two or better. They don't want it in the generic category because they could only get a 40% discount, right? So they want to dump, they want to dump, dump it up here in the brand category, and then they keep the spread between 40 and 16, okay? The other thing they do to employers, if you've ever been an employer and you get the consulting firm who hands you a spreadsheet and says, well, this one gives you a better discount than that one, meaningless. Because if I can stick enough generic drugs up in here, I can get you minus 20, Right? If I can take a whole bunch of 45 discounted drugs and stick them in the top category, I can make that number look really, really good. But it's going to cost you money all day long. Right? So this is how they play with games with, uh, with definitions. I'll give you a couple of my favorite definitions. Okay? What we really want is independent third-party definition of what a branded generic is. Don't let the PBM define it for themselves. And this is a company called Medispan. Everybody knows them. Everybody uses them. And if you go all the way to something called product code indicators, these two sets of co codes will define for you branded generic. 90% of PBMs do not want to use these definitions. 
because it shuts the door on their ability to swap drugs between brand and generic categories. It forces them to use an outside third party to determine what is a brand, what's a generic. They don't like it. They don't want to use it, but they're great definitions. Death by algorithm. This is the other thing we see in a lot of the contracts, and that is they have this brand generic, a BGA, a proprietary algorithm that stabilizes product flipping. They're doing it for you. That way, when you go from one month to the next, the product doesn't flip between brand and generic. It's a great thing that they're doing for you. And you may audit the PBM's application of it. Mind you, you're not auditing whether it makes sense. You're not auditing whether it's doing brand and generic properly. You're only auditing that they've applied it consistently, right? So this is not an audit whether this makes sense. This is an audit that they applied it properly. So what happens when they reclassify generics as brands? And that's a lot of stuff to look at, but just real quick, you can see that these are all generic drugs over here that we have here. So doxycycline, the poor employer got 13% off. It's a generic drug. The AWP, as, she, as Mary is talking about, is $680. The real cost should be 306 which means the discount is 50%, 60%. The employer paid 594 This is real data. Right? This comes from actual employers where we get the actual drug file of all the claims that got paid, and we can run these analysis and go, look, sodium fluoride, they actually paid more than the average wholesale price. Granted, it's not a real expensive drug, but you can see on some of these, there are some huge numbers. We're paying 3000 too much per drug for whatever this is. Dermaxin RX Prizopac. I don't know where they come up with their names. Um, but this is why the definitions are important. If they can move generic drugs and stick them under brand, they're giving you 13, they're buying it for minus 50, and they're pocketing the difference. Rebates. So Mary mentioned this, and these are, these are the two big revenue streams. Money provided by a drug manufacturer really is for placement on the formulary. Mary said that. This is a pay-for-play. We don't call it kickbacks. I'm not sure why not, but we don't call it kickbacks. Um, the other thing on rebates is money by another name may or may not be a rebate. And Mary talked about this a little bit too. Rebate started as being very simple. There was a rebate that was paid. And then once people said, well, I want some of that rebate money, it became administrative fees. It became all these other things. For the most part, as a member, you do not see rebates. You might have heard once in a while something in the news where Aetna or United started doing point-of-service rebates, and that was for the high-deductible people because they would go there, and that way the rebates got applied against the employee's cost. Um, I did have one issue, though, one time where an employee went and their generic drug was like $400 and they used that app called GoodRx and they got it for like 260 and went back to HR saying, well, why is our health insurance cost almost 2x what I can get it off of this app? That insurance company finally told me, just have them buy it through GoodRx. We're not, we, we're not going to answer that question, literally. So rebates, this is a great example for pay for placement. There's a drug out there called Duexis. Another one, a couple people are nodding. There's another one called Vimovo out there also. Duexis will cost anywhere between $18 to $2,400. There's about an $800 plus rebate that goes back to the PBM, may or may, may, or may not make its way back to the employer. Duexis is Advil and Pepsid combined into a single pill. Okay, well, actually, you know, that's ibuprofen and foraminidine or something like that. These are generic drugs. These, you can buy these at, you know, Walgreens for $20. And yet it's going to cost your employer 1800 And yet the PBMs get this on the formulary. And worse yet, the manufacturer of it, if you try to say, I don't want that one, they say, well, you can't have our other drugs. So not only are they paying rebates, they're holding hostage drugs you do want on your formulary to get this one on there so they can make their money. 
and there is no clinical reason. I'm yet to find a pharmacist that says that there's a clinical reason for this drug. Convenience, not for $1,800. So more bad rebate language. So I, I, I love pulling out actual contract language to show people what's going on here. The first one, do you think this PBM is going to share rebates with you? PBM retains all right title and interest to the rebates. Yeah, no, they're telling you up front, we're going to keep all the rebates that we get. Um, second one, if anything changes, we're going to adjust things. The third one is the one that you have to watch out for. They talk about rebates, but then they say, oh, there's other earned revenue that we are going to keep. Why? Right? Alignment of incentives. Anytime you have the PBM making money specifically off of a specific drug, drug A versus drug B makes them more profit, which one are they going to pick? Probably drug A. And this is the problem. The PBM controls prior authorization. If you've ever gone for an expensive drug, the doctor has to file a prior authorization with the pharmacy benefit manager to see if that drug will be approved. Do you get to have that drug? Well, on prior authorization, they can do all types of things. Like I said, depending on where the rebates are. Or in this case, you know, why didn't they move certain drugs to generics? So here's one up, for, up front, Glumetza. There's a generic called Metformin. The brand cost is over $100,000. The generic cost is two hundred and ten. Okay, this employer paid $100,000 too much because the PBM did not move that employee to a generic. That's, this is the, the scope of the money we can talk about, and you can see the numbers up there. So nutshell, filling brands when generics are available makes PBMs money. And who controls the filling of brand and generic? The PBM, right? Not a good way to go. So what do I like to see in a rebate? All manufacturer-derived revenue right? We don't talk about rebates anymore. We now talk about all manufacturer derived revenue. What has to go along with this, and I don't have it in this chart, is the audit clause. Because what you need to do is make sure you can audit the manufacturer's contracts. And you can audit the contract between the pharmacy and the PBM. Because a lot of them will say, oh, we're transparent. You can audit. You can audit what we paid the pharmacy. That's not good enough. You need to be able to audit the actual pharmacy contract. Once again, a bunch of the PBMs do not want to adopt this definition. Because this definition, once again, shuts down that revenue stream for them. There's only a few PBMs in the marketplace that will go, that's fine. We'll accept all this because we're going to take it on a fee basis. We'll take a fee only because we're working in the interest of the employer. Most of these contracts, I feel you're in competition with the PBM and what you're trying to get done. Um, this is the last fun one I'll do because I'm running out of time. There is a contract out there where the, where the PBM says, we'll give you all the rebates. And if you dig further in the contract, they go, oh, but here are rebatable eligible claims. Okay. Does not include everything in red up there are things that rebates probably are attached to, but they've already exempted all those from that. Um, this isn't the worst of them. I couldn't find one of the other ones I read once, which was actually a contract that was done by like one of the really large unions out of Washington, D.C., and then given to all the locals. It excluded from rebates all injectables. That's all your Embrils, all your Humeras, all your Insulins, all your Stroleras, all these new expensive drugs that all carry really big rebates. But I was told the PBM doesn't charge us anything. It's all free. It's like, guys, you just gave away the store. Um, I've seen contracts where they say, I'm good, one last example. Um, we'll give you all the rebates, but then they exclude any new, to drug, uh, new, market, new drugs to market. And new drug to market is defined as anything that comes after the date we signed this contract. Yeah. Exactly. Think about that for a minute. So three years down the road here, what's, what, how, what's the PBM doing? And by the way, most of these contracts, the PBM locks you in for three years and you cannot get out. Okay. I refuse to have a client sign that. 
right? But they will literally lock you in. And even if you have a problem, they get like 30 days to, to repair it. If they repair it, you still can't get out of the contract because they know if they get you for that three-year period of time, they can play these games over three years. They might lose money or break even year one, but by year three, they're cashing the cash. So I'll stop there. Um, <laughs> you get the idea. It's in the contract and you have to get the alignment of the contract to the needs of the employer or employee. And it's tough to do, to Mary's point. And the big guys really are not fans of doing it. You are listening to the Commonwealth Club of California. Hear thousands of our podcasts on iTunes, Google Play, and Stitcher. Learn about our travel programs to exciting domestic and international destinations. And when you're in the Bay Area, please join us live for any of our 500 programs each year. You can find us online at commonwealthclub.org. Now back to our program. Promote will discuss some of the key drivers that are used to influence demand and price, and he'll talk about how achieving the best patient outcomes are not aligned with the PBM incentives. You heard part of that from David, but that the data on patient drugs and costs is more important to getting the best outcome for patients. So, Promote. Thank you. So... One of the things you've probably figured out by now is that there's a lot of obfuscation. And if you really think about sort of what's going on, it's that the real way that we control markets is that people don't have visibility into what's going on. As a result, you don't understand what it is. So you can't understand what to do when you don't actually understand what's going on. And so you obviously know the answer to if you ever have a PBM contract issue, who do you call? You call David and Mary, right? They'll help you with that. So now we've at least established that part of the question. But let's go backwards a step. How many of you have seen the big short or read the big short about the housing crisis that led to, you know, an economic crisis of, of really worldwide proportions, right? And if you were to go back and ask yourself, well, why did that happen? Well, the main reason that happened was that we were buying things and we didn't understand what it was that we were buying. So think about a mortgage-backed CDL. So we were out there going and saying, hey, how much is this mortgage-backed CDL? It's $2 billion, right? But nobody was really asking the question of, well, how do we really value and understand what's in a mortgage-backed CDL. And if you, if, you, if you take a look at that, you realize that was why. If we had known the answer to how we could value a mortgage-backed CDL, then how, the financial crisis would never have happened, right? And so in the same way, in, when we start thinking about things like drugs, often we talk about the price of drugs. But we're not asking the question of, well, what does a drug actually do? Does it actually do anything? And we've all started with the assumption that, well, these drugs must work and they must do something useful because we're paying large prices for them. And it turns out that is just as obfuscated and in many ways not true in the way that we think that is also. And so we talked and, and, and uh, you know, Mary had mentioned data and the role of data. And so, you know, one of the things that we talk about a lot is sort of the the role of data. And this is a device that was used, uh, you know, uh, a few hundred, uh, about a hundred years ago. And it was used for a lot of things. It's called a tobacco smoke enema, right? <laughs> and so it's a healthcare device. So think of it as a medical device, right? That's used in hospitals and everywhere else. Physicians used it. And it cured all sorts of things, drowning, typhoid, hernias. <laughs> it could be used for all sorts of things because it was an amazing magical device. And we'll get back to the question of how well it actually worked in a second. <laughs> But if we go back and ask, well, what are we really paying for when we get a drug, right? So it goes back to the question of, we always talk about buying drugs, but let me ask you a question. If a drug were to sit on a shelf and it cost $100,000, if I were to take that drug and flush it down the toilet, or if I took that drug and it didn't work for the person who was on it, how different are any of those scenarios? 
Now, we think they're all different, but they're not. Because at the point that the drug doesn't work for the person who's on it, we've achieved a zero outcome or zero return on investment of what we're actually doing. So an easy way to think about, well, what are we really looking at? It's not the drug that we care about. Because we only care about one thing. Does the drug actually improve the quality of life or the, uh, or the life expectancy of the person who's on the drug? And how, what is that divided by the cost? That's the reason why we have drug therapies. And so there's another fundamental problem, which is we keep thinking, like, for example, who's accountable to make sure that every patient gets the best outcome? All of us assume that somebody cares, right? Is it the PBM? Clearly not. Is it the healthcare insured? Clearly not. Is it my employer? Maybe. Is it my doctor? Of course, right? And how many people have actually met doctors who call them and check up on them and go through your records when you're not there? Very few doctors do because they don't have time to do that. So clearly the people that we think who are doing this aren't doing it either. So it turns out nobody's doing it. Right. And we have a system in which we make these assumptions and those assumptions are actually not true. Right. So we talked a little bit about PBMs. This is uh, this is from the J.P. Morgan conference, which which was earlier this year in San Francisco, as it's held every year. And this is the slide that talks about CVS Caremark. And if you look at the slide, you'll see that CVS Caremark has got headwinds and uh, they're talking about the headwinds for their business. Right. And then they've got tailwinds for their business. And the tailwind for their business is specialty drug cost growth. So a headwind for everybody sitting in the room as an American is a tailwind for CVS Caremark's business. And so we've got a misalignment right out of the gate where the healthcare system is growing. And, and, and you know, post ACA, if you look at hospital profitability, and it's not that we spent a lot of time talking about people like, you know, PBMs and all these intermediaries. They don't set the price of what a hospital procedure costs. They don't set the price of what the drug costs. Those are pharma, the drug companies that set that. That's the local hospital. Many of you have probably seen the Sutter Health settlement about antitrust settlement that's been going on right in the state of California. That's every state in this country, right? And so, you know, in many ways, we've got these problems all across the board. And if we don't understand how people make money, then we're not going to be able to do anything to change the way the system works. And so... One of the questions that always comes up is also, we always think about, hey, we don't have enough physicians, we don't have enough of this, we don't have enough of that. If you were to compare how many pharmacies in the U.S. that we have, and you were to add up every McDonald's and every Starbucks in America, we're still at over two times more pharmacies in the U.S. Have you ever had difficulty finding a Starbucks? Have you ever had difficulty finding a McDonald's, assuming you wanted to find one? Right? It's like, no. But that's the way the system works today. Right. So clearly we've got an oversupply of many of these things. So how about breakthrough innovation? Because as the political debate is going on right now, we keep hearing that every time we talk about controlling drug costs, the response is always, but it will stifle innovation in America. And that innovation stifling will mean that we go without drugs that are useful. I'm going to show you some drug data in a few seconds about what these useful drugs actually do in real life. Because we're not really asking the question of, well, what use have we gotten out of the dollars that we've spent on research, right? That's not, that's not a question we're asking. And so, for example, this is, I don't know how, much you, how many of you have seen Breaking Bad, but, uh, you know, in the first episode of Breaking Bad, Walter White talks about chiral molecules. And it turns out this is a very useful lesson because this is a big blockbuster drug called Nexium, right, that probably everybody's heard of. And if you look at Nexium, you see a couple of interesting things. So one is that 
Prilosec, which is a generic equivalent of the drug, is a chiral molecule. If you draw a line through the middle, do you see how they're reflecting across the axis? It's a chiral molecule. So Nexium is the molecule cut in half, exactly the same molecule, okay? And so that became a blockbuster, and there's no clinical difference between the two of those things at all. And so if you were to look at the data, you'll find there's no difference at all in clinical trial data between those two things. So if you were to think about how we, if you were to apply the same principle to buying apples, that would be that we could pay a dollar for a whole apple, or someone could cut the apple in half, and we could pay $50 for the half the apple, right? That's apple economics for how we buy drugs. So one of the other fundamental problems that we face is that we assume that physicians understand the data themselves. And we make assumptions about things like the FDA. For another example, another assumption we make is FDA approval equals that the drug actually works. That, too, is not true, right? These are assumptions that we make. The FDA's primary focus is on safety. It's actually not on the question of whether a drug works or not. There are actually no objective standards at all as far as the FDA is concerned. But the FDA approval is our gold standard that we're looking for for should we pay for a drug or not. And, and also, over the last 30 years, we've had a huge number of new approval types come out. And these approval types now are what we would have considered experimental use of a drug just 20 years ago. For example, I'll give you an example. Um, in the category of breakthrough therapies, in, since 1992, there were 93 breakthrough therapies, and they were all oncology, because that's an area that we're all looking for breakthroughs in. But if you were to ask, hey, what do we actually get from a breakthrough perspective? The, there, was a, there was a meta study that came out earlier this year that they found that of the 93 drugs since 1992 that were given breakthrough approvals, only 19 of them showed any improvement in overall survival. So if you were to go back and ask, well, why exactly would you be on a cancer drug? Well, because you want to live longer, right? That would be the whole point of the exercise. But in this case, only 19 out of 93 had an improvement in overall survival. And the average overall survival improvement for the 19 was 90 days. And we've paid billions and billions of dollars for those 93 minus 19, if somebody wants to do the math, of those drugs that actually did nothing at all to improve people's lives. And so a lot of times we make these assumptions that we're doing all these great things by spending money on these things. But without the data, us understanding what we're investing our dollars in, we're putting a lot of money into things that have no return on investment. And we're not asking the hard questions because, again, this has turned into things like politics and political debate rather than us understanding what is the underlying data. And that is a bipartisan problem. It is not a left or right problem. It's both sides are not asking the questions and understanding the details of how this industry actually works. So let me give you, a, you know, we talked a lot about things like generic drugs, brand drugs. So this, uh, if you look on the left, here's some crazy stats for you. As of 2015, we were at about 90% of our scripts, roughly 90% of our scripts sold in America were generic drugs, and about 10% uh, about were non-generic you know, or brand drugs. But here's a crazy thing. The cost of those drugs looks nothing like the volume distribution. So that, that, that about 95 or actually technically 85% of drugs only accounts for 15% of our drug spend. We could give away... Nine out of 10 drugs to every American, and it would cost us probably seven points because we don't need all the infrastructure that we have in place to do that. We could give away nine out of 10. And for the rest of those drugs, you see a very small population of people. Like, for example, in this case, specialty drugs. These are all the new drugs that everybody sees on TV. And in this case, 1% of the population spends about 50% of the dollars. Okay, so this is a very small number of people who are driving all the costs. And we're not really asking the question of does, does this drug actually work? 
I believe in fairness, so I'm actually going to come over to this side so I can speak from this side to this side of the audience for uh, the rest of the conversation. And so I'm going to show you some data on a drug. This is a drug. I don't know if, how many of you saw the 60 Minutes episode that was talking about a drug called HP Akthar about a year ago. I mean, we have 60 Minutes talking about the specialty drug space. I mean, that's a pretty scary place that we're in when 60 Minutes is talking about it. It was about this drug. So if you look at this drug, this is all taken from their website. Okay, this is just cut and pasted out of their website. We haven't, you know, altered any of this. So number one, it says more rapid efficacy versus placebo. Okay, so... so <laughs> Number one, one of the things that we see all the time is people misunderstand the difference between, misunderstand what efficacy is. We always use the term efficacy, and what we're thinking is that we think it means the drug working. Efficacy has nothing to do with that. It's the population response rate. What that means is how many people out of 100 actually met the description of the drug's endpoint or description of does the drug actually do anything. So in this case, it says we got a more rapid population response rate. Don't know what that means, right? And so then it says, in a clinical study, one, it says at week one, 70%. Now we see a big number, 70. And all of us are like, whoa, this must be an amazing drug. Big number right there, right? And it says, actar-treated patients experience improvement in their overall condition compared to almost 50% of people who were injected with sugar water also achieved exactly the same response, okay? That means a coin flip probability, right? And then you're like, wow. That's pretty crazy. Then it says, all right, for the first time, in the next statement, it actually defines what an endpoint actually is. In the same study, 65% of actar-treated patients showed an improvement or greater than or equal to one DSS step. So if you have MS, DSS is a, is a subjective scoring mechanism that's used to assess how pro, what your disease progression is for MS. And in this case, it says that it's one DSS step. It turns out the scale is a 20-point scale in which one DSS step is the smallest step that you can actually go up by. You can't go up any less than one DSS step. Okay? And then you see it says 65% of the actar-treated patients showed an improvement or greater than or equal to one DSS step, which is approximately, it's not a linear scale, but that's like saying a 5% improvement, okay? So now you ask, well, how much does this drug cost? It's a half a million dollar a year therapy, okay? And then what's the kicker in all of this isn't that? It's that in their own label, it says, however, there is no evidence that it affects the ultimate outcome or natural history of the disease. So basically, they're saying it does nothing for you if you have MS. They tell you that. But we pres- Medicare alone prescribed two... Bi- oh, how do I go back? Oh, I'm sorry. Uh, Medicare itself prescribed $2 billion worth last year. Okay? And so the, 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 the thing I love about this is that imagine a world in which we all hate health insurers. Humana, of, in August, filed a lawsuit against Malincrod because of this drug. And in their brief, it says... One, this is a quote out of it. it. says, one of the most outrageous price gouging schemes in the history of American medicine. <laughs> right? And so how about, now most of you probably never heard of that drug HP actor, but how about Humira? And David already mentioned Humira. It's the biggest selling drug in all of history. It's the biggest selling drug in the United States today and uh, on an annual basis. And if you look at this drug, this is RA data, you'll see that in about half the population, there was no response or poor response at all. So on the top, you see effectiveness or the definition of the drug working. And on the bottom, you see the definition of efficacy. What's the population response rate? So in this case, you see the majority of people, drug did nothing for them. And for the people in the middle, see the red 
where it says mediocre response, 27 out of 100 people have got an ACR 20. The definition of an ACR 20 is basically you went and saw your rheumatologist and you complain. Your rheumatologist counts your joints. There is no objective test here. It's a subjective test. So you say, well, okay, you've got about 10 achy and swollen joints. They put you on a drug that's a $70,000 a year for life biologic, which has side effects like lymphoma. And then the doctor says, come back in 90 days, and we're going to do the same thing over again. Now, it turns out they don't actually do that. They don't even say, come back in 90 days, and we're going to reassess you. But let's assume they did, just for argument's sake. In this case, you come back, and now you have, instead of 10, you have eight achy and swollen joints. And that is a definition of success, or the drug working, for a $70,000 a year biologic. Now, in the category of where it says ACR70, an ACR70 doesn't sound that different from an ACR20, but it's actually almost a 4x better response. That is a category of people who potentially were in a wheelchair who could walk again. And all of us would probably look at that and say, well, that's probably a good use of the money. But that's not the majority of people who are on the drug, right, which is the problem. And so uh, we also make assumptions that, hey, physicians will always do the right thing and are not influenced by economic, uh, external economic reasons. Uh, the uh, the uh, 2018 data just came out from open payments. The amount of payments to physicians uh, directly or to institutions that they owned was $3.6 billion in 2018 alone. And uh, there was a study that was just done uh, in the oncologist earlier this year, and they found that for 100 bucks, you increase the odds of a doctor prescribing that drug by 2x. That's two lunches. We're not talking about millions of dollars or thousands of dollars. We're talking about two lunches is all it takes. Think about this as a behavioral economics problem. And then, so if we were to go back and ask, well, how do we change the system? What do we have to do differently? Well, one is that we have to decouple the cost of the drug from the transaction. That's exactly what the, you know, David and Mary were talking about. What difference does it make whether it's a $10 drug or a $1,000 drug? The transaction cost is exactly the same. But today we've got models in which as drug prices go up, everybody benefits in between. Everybody makes more money. Rather than saying, it's the same transaction. doesn't matter how many zeros in there. Computer doesn't care, right, how many zeros there are. Why do you make more money because there are more zeros in the cost of the drug? Makes no sense, right? And so it's very similar to how travel agents used to work. So think about it as the travel agent model that we don't really need anymore. The second thing is that going back to this uh, whole idea of the financial crisis, it was that, well, how do we actually know and assess the value of what a drug actually does? And until we're willing to do that, nothing's going to change. So imagine that we had Trulia. In the, during our financial crisis rather than Moody's making ratings of mortgage-backed CDOs. In that case, we could have built a bottom-up model to understand exactly how much every CDO was worth, and we could have priced every CDO automatically if we had data like Trulia. And today, imagine that's exactly the opposite of what we do in healthcare. And thirdly, it's today we think of these things as population problems, not as individualized care problems. And so we would argue that by healthcare by its very nature is not a population top-down problem. It's actually a bottom-up problem. At the point that you're sick, you don't care about the population. You care about, are you getting better, right? So imagine that that drug like Humira has got a 50% response rate. Well, you don't care that it has a 50% response rate. You care about, are you in the 50 that's a responder or are you not in that, you know, in the 50 that are non-responders? The population response makes absolutely no difference to you as an individual. And our models are still largely based on population response rates rather than looking at this from an individual perspective. And so if we were to go back and ask, how could we reinvent? I mean, so let me ask a fundamental question. What prevents us from reinventing the system? And it turns out, pardon? Congress, well, 
Well, I mean, to some extent, you're absolutely right. I mean, some of the regulations definitely aren't helping, right? But if we were to go back and ask, these are largely economic problems, right? There's no law that protects the PBM to do these things. It's that we often just stop saying, you know, we just keep doing the same thing over and over again. And so part of the issue isn't just that we can't do things differently. It's that we aren't doing things differently. So if we were to go back and ask, hey, could we stop doing some of these things? Turns out the answer is, of course, there's no law which states that you must do things in the wrong way. There's no law that states that you must sign up for a bad contract, right? So, I mean, a lot of these things aren't because there are laws that make us do bad things or poor choices. It's because we keep doing the same thing over and over again. So if you were to step back and ask, well, how could we build a model that looks different from this? Well, the whole basis of it would be objective data, objective data that understands what these drugs actually do. Objective data that understands where is this person who is on that drug and how does their data match? It's not about opinions. I mean, imagine a world. How many have heard the word second opinion? And you're like, we use that term all the time. And medicine is not an art. What, when we start talking about medicine being an art, what that really means is there's a line in the sand and knowledge that we don't have. And every time there's knowledge that we don't have, we call that an art. In the rest of our worlds, we would just say, we don't know, Right. And medicine is supposed to be a science. That's why we go through drug trials. That's why we go through all the things that we go through. But that's not how it works today, right? And there's nothing that prevents us from reinventing the way that it is, right? So at some point, if we're going to change the way the system works, then we need to change the way the system works. We can't just incrementally be doing the same thing that we're doing over and over again. So let me go back to the original thing. So it turns out that this... Tobacco smoke enema, as many of you have probably figured out, actually didn't work as you thought it would. And it turns out that we use these phrases all the time, but that is where the term blowing smoke up one's ass actually came from. And it is actually a medical term and probably didn't even know that we were using a medical term at the time we were using it, right? And so next time you see these things on television and people you know, start talking about things, remember about the history of medicine, right? And so I would highly recommend two books that are worth reading. One is called Ending Medical Reversal, phenomenally interesting book, because it talks about the history of medicine and all the medical reversals that have occurred over time as we've, as we've gotten more data. And the second book is a new book that just came out about, uh, less than, about two weeks ago. It's a phenomenally good book worth reading that talks about the system and the economic impacts to our society. All right. Thank you so much. Um, so actually, um, so I have a question for our panel, which is, um, given you said that we don't have to keep doing things the same way that we have them now, um, what would happen if we just got rid of PBMs or could we get rid of PBMs? Um, the answer to that is, I, you know, I, we would argue that absolutely yes, because, I mean, PBMs all use exactly the same software sets, right? These are all software that's been around for ages. There's nothing intrinsically interesting. There are all sorts of alternative PBMs now in the market that have very different business models, right? So they're already there in many ways, right? And, and, I, and I don't know that it's much, as much about getting rid of PBMs as getting rid of their existing business model. Mm -hmm. Because we still need somebody to actually, when you run into a pharmacy, you want it to be paid for. But that's really a transactional software problem, right? That's not a, I get to charge you more because it's a more expensive drug, or I get to steer you to the wrong drug issue. Mm -hmm. And I think the only way for us really to bust uh, 
get people excited enough to want to bust this open is to get some transparency, right? I mean, like, this is what we do for a living, but I don't think many people understand the model. And it's super hard, actually, to get the data to everyone. And the more, if we could get some more roles that would provide more transparency for every employer to understand what they're doing and what they're paying for, I think there would be more outrage. So if I if I can add that word transparency, it's used a lot in the industry now. So 15 years ago or so, a couple of PBMs started showing up who were transparent and passed through. So everybody else responded. All the traditional models responded and said, oh, we're transparent also. <laughs> They're opaque. Right? There's a big difference between being transparent and being opaque. And it all gets once, once it gets down to what do they actually let you go look at? What data can you get to? What can you actually audit? And if you can't actually get down to the audit levels, then they're not being transparent. They will actually strike things out of my audit clause that they, you know, say, nope, you can't go look at that. Okay, it tells them right there they're not transparent. You know, I think and one of the interesting things there is that if you think about the debate right now about Medicare for all, right, huge divide, depending on whether you're on the left or you're on the right. And, and it's a divide that's almost an impasse for both sides. Here's a simple one that shouldn't be a divide for anybody. We want transparency to medical pricing and information mm -hmm. across the U.S. Yep. And why don't we have that? Yeah. If we had that one thing, that hospital contracts weren't confidential, what you pay your doctor isn't confidential, if you were to do that one thing, that would have a bigger impact on the market than the, art, the, the useless debate that we're arguing because we're never going to get over this impasse. And as a result, we don't actually act on the things that we should be doing. Yeah. Rather, we focus on the impasse. And, and there is a long committee right now. I'd have to grab my phone to find out what it was named because I just was at a conference where they were talking about it that actually has all these provisions in it. And I was listening to going... We want that. I'm willing to bet it will be dead on arrival because, mm. well, the Sutters of the world don't want it out there. I mean, they, <laughs> they just settled because they didn't want people to actually find out what was going on, uh, right? They, they settled. Trials open. Um, you know, one thing that wasn't mentioned is if, if you watch the stock market, uh, United Healthcare took a huge jump on Tuesday. Why? Well, their lead story, their Optum arm, which is their PBM arm, up 13.49% or something like that, led on profitability. So, I mean, it's, it's, you know, those, those folks have big lobbies, you know, pharma has the largest lobby, I think in, in Congress. Yeah. Very strong. Um, okay. First question. If the majority of Americans work for small or medium employers, not the large market, and those employers have no power, what do we do? I think you go to another PBM. Like I actually think you don't have to go to the three major PBMs. You don't need a massive network of pharmacies. Like, why don't you try a different model? I mean, I really think that, um, and we, we've talked about this many times, you can put together a group of vendors um, if you're just in California, right? And have a different model and not go to the CVS uh, group. So I think you can do it. You just have to take a little leap of faith. I, I have none of my clients with the big three. Yeah. It's just that simple. I will not work with them because you can't get a good contract for them for a smaller employer. There are other PBMs. There's probably another 300 PBMs out there that names you don't know. And actually, they have large national networks. They have yep. 60,000 pharmacies. Yep. So they, they exist out there. They just don't manage the market. And I'm, I'm going to indict my own industry. There's consultants out there that make a lot of money mm -hmm. by being watch guards over the big three. They're actually part of the problem because they should know the stuff I'm putting up there, but that wouldn't work for them in themselves making their consulting fees at the same time. So there's own self-perpetuating where they build these collectives that they sell well, they're actually wholesalers at that point. Mm -hmm. They're no longer consultants. They're wholesaling CVS or wholesaling ESI out to clients and saying, oh, we've gotten this great deal for you. 
but it's also they're getting money in the background also now. It's it's a it's actually a vicious circle. It's terrible. Yeah. I think it's a really insightful question, and the reason why that's an insightful question is that today, if you think about our public policy, our public policy is largely set by the largest employers in America, and what, it, what they end up doing influences the smallest employers in America because you know, the someone whoever asked that question is a very valid point that they have no purchasing power or ability to go in and change these things but the large employers in America keep doing what they're doing so imagine that you're a large company you're Google and you say you know what I really care about my employees so I don't actually care what they do and how they spend money well what what do you think is going to happen to the cost of you know cars if everyone starts overpaying by 10x for those cars well, the cost of cars is going to go up for everyone, not for the people who are paying it, but for everyone else. And the majority of employed people in America don't work for the Fortune 500 or the Fortune 1000 or the Fortune 2000. They work in employers that are 25 people or less when you think about sort of the distribution of people in the U.S. So actually, I think that maybe answers this other question, which is why are there only three PBMs? You said there are not only. And uh, why can't you just fire them and get a better one? <laughs> so, so, so yes, answer is yes, yes, that's yes, what I do. do I, I do that on a regular basis. I, okay. I, now, I, let me caveat one thing. The big PBMs, like I said, if you're American Airlines, you can get a good deal from them, right? So they will buy that market share at a low margin rate. They make their money on the smaller clients because yep. mm-hmm. they can do it. Yep. Okay, we have two that are fairly similar to have to do with Congress. What I heard tonight was that Big Pharma has bought off Congress. Um, please comment. And the other one uh, is yes. related yes. to that is, what are your thoughts on the Pharma bill that just passed in the House? Well, several have passed in the House. Yeah. So. Which one? Yeah. Do we know anyone in particular? Seemed to want to... Okay, that was my question. And clearly I'm not aware of all of the <laughs> <laughs> But I was just reading that the... That the OMB released a report saying that people would save an insane amount if they negotiated 250 drugs. Yeah. Yeah. So I think that's super interesting because then you would, any for us, we and maybe we could you could get the conversation going that AWP is nonsense. Like we all negotiate off of AWP, this made up number that never goes down ever, even when all these other drugs come on the market and the generic comes on the market. The AWP set for a drug 10 years ago stays the same, right? It's like the value of your car never going down doesn't make any sense. But if you actually could negotiate for Medicare and say, we're going to do 250 drugs, this is the cost of that drug. I bet you if you compare that to AWP, you would be able to see the nonsense that's built into the price of a drug. So I would, well, I'm like, yeah, go down and do that. And then in my contracts, I'm going to say, we pay no more than the medic, what's been negotiated as the rate for that drug. So it would be a, you know, a starting point. I think it also raises a really interesting question, which is that we believe in butter knives. And what I mean by that is that, so we go out and negotiate a PBM contract, or we go out and negotiate a carrier contract, and you want a specific discount. And no one's asking the question of, well, if you took the top 10 procedures that are the top 10 most expensive things on a healthcare contract and you negotiated those down, you would save more money yep. than anything else that you would do on your contract, right? And that's a, that's a purchasing thing, right? Because when you think about purchasing, it has nothing to do with healthcare. It has to do with any sort of contract for any good or service that you're buying, right? And so the way that you treat low-frequency, high-cost items is completely different from the way that you treat high-frequency, low-cost items. We don't buy our lettuce and our cars in the same way. Maybe you do. I don't, right? (laughs) And if you're like, well, why don't we buy lettuce and our cars in the same way? Well, because the supply-side markets for those two things are completely different. The frequency is different. The value is different. 
And so all these things have different markets for those things. But we tend to think of they're all the same. And the same thing in healthcare on medical side contracts, which is why these things are broken, because we're not looking at the cost of the individual things. And that's what Medicare is really saying. Hey, if we were to look at the cost of those individual things, we realize those 250 are all that matter. Everything else doesn't make any difference. Charge whatever you want. It's not going to move the dial. Which is pretty great. Yeah. Um, did we want to have a comment on uh, Big Pharma buying off comment, uh, Congress? There is actually a statute, ERISA, which governs the, these employer plans that requires transparency. And we, if you watch um, that space, that kind of odd space at all, you know that there were a ton of lawsuits about providers overcharging retirement plans on the record fees. Like, right, that's just been for the last 10 years, we've seen tons of these cases. Well, there were supposed to be the same rules for health plans, supposed to be transparency in pricing and costs of health plans. And uh, the Department of Labor said, oh, yes, you know, employers are really getting screwed. This is terrible. There's no transparency. We're going to issue regulations. Had all these public hearings and the FTC blocked it. Because when you go to issue regulations, every agency that it may impact gets to say something about it. And the FTC said, no way. They were completely bought off by pharma and PBM. And it was unbelievable. This was in 2014. Um, it was a pretty sad moment. And so now you go to that section of the regulations in ERISA, and that says reserved. So Congress did pass the rule. Like, it's there on the books, but we can't get it through um, any of the DOL rules. Like, we can't get any regulations issued. Yeah, I mean, this administration wouldn't even propose it. And the Obama administration actually proposed it, but the FTC blocked it. So, I mean, it's a very, I, I don't know, I feel like no matter what, we're having this problem getting it through the agencies. But Congress actually has gotten, you know, a statute passed. They'd have to just come out with a much stronger statute. Yeah, I'm saying they don't execute. Yeah, no. They pass the law and they don't execute. Correct. We usually execute it through regulations. Yeah. Actually, the biggest problem is people watching television. If people would quit watching television, they wouldn't buy these drugs. It's probably true. They're not smart enough. The American public is probably the... I don't want to get into that. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, watching television, that's that's what television is all about. Big Pharma has also bought off television. Yeah. I think your point's valid, but... The, the you know if we were to think about tra- car transmission repair and say that hey everyone in America should be able to understand how to repair their own transmission most of us would look at that and say very complicated problem um, it's not that we could really train people to do that in the same way if we were to say well how about oil changes we could probably get everybody in America to figure out how to do an oil change right and the problems that we deal with in healthcare that's why we go to experts the the experts are the only ones who are allowed to prescribe medications. And so you're right. Americans ask for too many medications, but at the end of the day, they have no power to prescribe for themselves. There is a physician in the chain who actually prescribed that medication. And let's not remove the accountability from the physician who prescribed that medication because they are supposed to be the stopgap. They are supposed to be the transmission expert in this case. And they are the ones who actually signed on that prescription pad, not the consumer. And so ultimately, that's why the buck stops there, and they are the ones who should be held accountable for these actions. You know what the public doesn't understand? That the doctors are not as smart as, as the public thinks they are. <laughs> How about every single drug? <laughs> they can't be. That's right. Papers and processing people. But the, the problem is the American people. They're buying this junk, and they're buying stuff that's actually more de- detrimental for their health. And if they didn't take it, but they watch television, Oh, and they take a pill. Why? They're lazy. 
That's another problem. Okay. So this is a question I think that probably a lot of people have, which is it's important if uh, drugs could be imported from Canada and it's legalized, would that actually solve the problem of the high cost of drugs? No. I don't think so. Yeah, I don't think so either. So uh, my my take on this, and actually it's illegal for a pharmacy to do that. You as an individual actually can and there are firms out there. There's one called Canada RX that now the big PBMs don't want this to happen because anything they don't control, they don't make money on. Some of the transparent PBMs don't care, and they'll, they'll actually advertise and say, hey, you go to Canada RX, you can send your prescription to Canada, talk to a Canadian doctor, they'll send you the drugs, and you get at these lower costs, right? So there are avenues. The issue being is when I hear about the legislation of we want our pricing in the U.S. to be equal to that of Canada, I don't think our prices, you know, if we're paying 1000 and Canada's paying $500, we are not getting 500 Canada's going up to 750 and we're getting 750, right? So this whole thing is going to find equilibrium if we try to open up that that thing. Well, I think um, the administration has discussed, right? Oh, um, absolutely. So there's a, there's a, there's actually a different reason why this isn't going to work. Our our CMO, Chief Medical Officer is from Genentech. And you can imagine at Pharma, they probably have conversations about this topic, right? Because ultimately they're the ones who produce the drugs that we're talking about. And the reason why nobody in pharma cares, if no, if, you, if no one in pharma cares, that's usually a negative signal, <laughs> right? Because at that point you realize, well, that clearly means that it's not going to affect pharma if no one in pharma is complaining about it. The reason why nobody in pharma is complaining about it is that every other country except the United States has negotiated drug prices and will not pay over that. So, for example, Canada has limited, it's only got 40 million people in it. And as soon as, that, as soon as we talked about importation, you remember what Canada said? We're not going to allow exportation. And the reason why they're not going to allow it is that, and the only reason why pharma doesn't put export restrictions on drugs that it puts into other countries is the diversion is so small that they don't care. The day the diversion becomes large enough to where it can make an economic difference in this country, every one of the pharma manufacturers is already going to block exportation from those countries. It's going to be a requirement that you can't export them. And as a result, whatever we're doing isn't going to move our market because all pharma, the only reason pharma is not doing anything is because it's a rounding error and they don't care. Okay, we have time for one more question. Benchmarking the price. I mean, I realize that we talked about benchmarking U.S. drugs to an average of the price in the top 30 developed countries in the world or something like that. Is that a reasonable solution or is that just rearranging decks on the Titanic, rearranging chairs on the Titanic? I think it's a perfectly reasonable solution, and here's why. The United States is the only country that does not set prices, Mm -hmm. okay? So we already have an unfair market. There is no market for drug pricing if you're the only one who can't set price. And as a result, every other country is already doing that. So the fair thing in this case if, if, if for us to say is that we will not, not pay anything more than developed countries will do because there is no market. If there is no market, you only have one choice. You know, either you have a free market and you allow the market to equilibrate the price or if there is no free market, then your only other option is to set price. And so for drugs today, if all the other countries in the world except the United States impose restrictions on pricing, then the only way this is going to work is for us to do the same. There is no free market here for equilibrate pricing. Okay, we have one last question here. Uh, Mary, would imposing ERISA fiduciary status on PBMs impar- impact their business model and change the industry? Yeah, I mean, they're fighting that right now. Uh, there's actually a case, surprisingly, that's going on to discovery, um, the Negron case, and with the idea that um, the employer plan is paying too much for drugs. Like the amount 
of spread compensation that they receive um, and the way that they overcharge plans for drugs, all of that money that doesn't flow back through to the plan, that they're basically holding plan assets for themselves and not for in the benefit of participants and beneficiaries. That kind of claim under the ERISA rules has been made in a zillion cases. This is the first time I've seen it actually get past the discovery stage. Um, so, I mean, yes, I think the ERISA construct is there. I just have never seen anyone actually prevail on the argument. Okay. Um, good. Uh, right. One quick one. Yeah, I was just going to ask, um, if you spend more time talking about the disruption that's actually happening, is there any disruption like with Amazon, Amazon Telepack or whatever they're doing? What is, there has to be disruption. I mean, at some point, someone's going to do something. I think that's right. <laughs> so, I mean, I would say that there are smaller PBMs out there that are doing these transparent models, doing it on a fee basis. Um, one of the larger ones three years ago got sold for like $785 million to a private equity firm. 18 months later, they sold it to Rite Aid for $1.5 billion <laughs> because they killed the model, stopped doing it on a fee basis, and started doing it on spread margin, doubled the profits because you know sales are done on multiples of EBITDA. They somehow doubled the EBITDA and sold it off again. So one of my biggest fears of like a couple of my favorite PBMs, because they're small, is going to be acquired and they're going to shut the doors on them. Because if somebody offers enough money, somebody's going to sell. So it, there are market disrupt- disruptors out there. The question is, at what point in time does like an Amazon adopt the transparent pass-through model? And that's going to force the change. The, the issue right now is these, these pass-through models mostly, out, you know, they're only covering a couple million employees at a time. And that's small potatoes kind of in the large market. That's the tough, the tough part. So there are people trying to, and there's money to be made doing it. Um, but I think it's a difficult equation. So but if I could say one thing, I mean, with the acquisition of PillPack, for example, and what Amazon's doing, they're a rounding error still with the number of transactions. PillPack was a rounding error, right? When you actually look at the number of transactions out of the 4.3 billion you know, uh, transactions that are run every year in the U.S., and unless Amazon is going to set its sights on dislodging or disintermediating the existing big three, mm-hmm. nothing's going to change. And the reason for that is that with 90% of the scripts being generic, that's only 15% of the dollars. If Amazon were, I mean, Amazon could have all of those. It's not going to move economically because that's not where the profit or retained profits in the industry are. They come from the brand and, gener- and the specialty drugs. And unless Amazon's going to do something there, they're not going to change anything. Actually, I had a little bit of that. If you look at some of, I think it was CVS's report 10K a while back, they actually said they made 50% of their profits at mail order generic. That's how much markup they were making on those things. So they make a ton margin, actually, on, on some of those pieces. Um, the other thing you'll notice though, is the big three, ESI owned by Cigna, CVS now owns Aetna, Optum owned by United Healthcare, and Anthem, another big player, they're coming out with Ingenio, but they're actually in the background using a CVS engine. So all your big insurance companies are tied to your three big because they generate so much revenue back out of that model. Okay, I'm sorry. We're uh, glad that we have uh, uh, really interesting questions, and thank you all for being here tonight. So I want to thank our expert panel, Mary Powell from Trucker Huss, David Wiesner from Epic, and Promote John from Vivio. Uh, let's see. I'm Judy Chan. So this has been a, a member-led forum of the Health and Medicine-led forum group, And I thank you very much for coming. We thank our audience as well as those listening on the club's recording. And so now this meeting of the Commonwealth Club of California is closed. Thank you.